Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. This episode of Behind the Curtain features a panel conversation produced and hosted by bass baritone Nicholas Brownlee. Nick sings Colonnay in L.A. Opera's current production of La Boheme, and his career is taking off and taking him around the world, including making his recent debut at the Metropolitan Opera. He also hosts a great Insider's Opera podcast called Hook, Push, and Pray. On September 17th, Nick sat down with L.A. Opera's Sebastian Paul and Maribel Musco president and CEO Christopher Kelsch, Senior Director for Artistic Programs Joshua Winograd, and renowned director Paul Curran, Head of Dramatic Instruction, in a wide and sometimes wild conversation that includes some adult language. Thanks to Nick for letting us share it today with you. So the whole idea of this podcast, the, the fun title was Wanted Dead or Alive, How to Reinforce Opera's Presence in the Coming Decades Without Killing What Makes It Special. Uh, I came up with it all on my own. You know, I tried my best. But we, I'm interested in just that last part first. What, what makes opera special? What makes opera special? Christopher has a really great way of explaining this, so I'm going to ask him to start. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I mean, the way, the way that I think about it is it's one of the only art forms uh, in which it's possible. Uh, it's a forum to explore the outer and inexpressible reaches of the human condition. It's an art form that requires hyperbole. Um, and in a world in which we look to kind of tamp down those emotions, those feelings, uh, I find it to be an incredible arena of uh, catharsis in which you can explore um, the most extreme aspects of, of the human condition. That's what makes it special to me. And you do it um, uh, live is really important to me. Um, and you do it by attracting people who have uh, superhuman abilities and talents. And I would say... Um that what I love about it is uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge theater fan and musical theater fan and symphony fan and ballet, but I think that what opera has um, over those is uh, when it nails it, it nails it so intensely that it's theater on a different level than anything else. Um, and I think maybe that has to do with all those elements coming together, the fact that there's this overwhelming, um, overwhelming of all the senses, the visual, the aural, um, and, uh, you know, but for me, uh, the stakes are the highest in opera for any, for any other performing arts because when it gets it right, it gets it so right. I feel utterly redundant because they've just said everything I was thinking, really. But <laughs> I'm not sure of an opinion. Um, I agree. It's absolutely the, as Wagner called it, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the altogether artistic collected work. And what Christopher said, I think, absolutely hits the nail on the head. And also uh, what uh, Josh was just saying about when it gets it right. Think of something as simple as the Tristan chord, the opening of Tristan. When you get to that chord, and the next note after, I think, is an A, 
That A, it's just in a massive theater, there's just one oboe playing an A. And somehow you feel as if your soul has been broken into. Opera can do that more than a ballet, than a symphony, than everything, because you are watching almost a 3D experience in that it is the visual picture, it is the actor, it is the music, it is the power, the enormous human power of the human voice. That's the big difference in opera, I think, is that adding all those together with the thing that all of us have, which is a voice, adds it up in a, in a very, very particular way. But part of, sorry, part, yeah, part, part, I mean, buried in all this, I think, is the sense of real danger. I mean, th there, there are so many tops spinning on top of so many tops, and I think the audience often senses that the whole thing could either collapse under its own weight or that if it gets slightly out of sync, there, there could very well be a train wreck, which makes it a, a real adrenaline rush for both the people on stage, and then I think that that translates to the people uh, within the audience. I didn't know you directed operas as well, because yeah. that's exactly how it feels. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> when you just don't know, you don't know if it's really gonna hold together. That tension, that moment of that, I would call it ephemeral experience, an experience that can come and can certainly go. It isn't an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that is repeated exactly the same way, exactly the same thing every night, and that is in the book when the assistant director picks up an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, they are told, the actor is told, you will make this emotion at this point and you will do this and you will do that. You can't do that in an opera because opera singers, artists have opinions. They have different moods. They, they interpret roles time and time again. And so you are always mi mixing a cake in a different way. And you never know really how it's gonna happen until on that opening night, the curtain goes up. Or as happened to me once, didn't go up. Well, I, I think I think that, that I think that's obviously those are all really well spoken, amazing points. Um, but I, I, anything that can succeed in such an extraordinary way can also fail in an equally extraordinary way. And so, uh, you know, as the singer part of this panel, uh, Josh, you can uh, attest to this as well. I'm sure Christopher and Paul could have sung if they wanted to. Um, but it, it, it's like it's it is it is thrilling to 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 sort of see us all doing it. And like, I, I tell everyone like, like if, you wanna, if you wanna really know how hard it is to be an opera singer, you think about Bohème, we're doing Bohème here. And like if the singer, like forget the production, forget all the other stuff on top of it. If the singer just doesn't, 15 minutes into the show, he has to sing this high C, which is a feat of human extraordinaryism that we can't even, I mean, the tension he's putting on his throat, the athletic feat that that is to sing a high C, just here in this practice room alone, forget 3,000 people in the audience, you know, 15 minutes into the show, if that C doesn't go well, the show suffers uh, immensely. Everyone's sort of let down a little bit. Now, so my question then becomes, you know, innovation, right? That's what we're all talking about. We all wanna innovate, we wanna change, we wanna move forward, we wanna, we wanna uh, improve upon opera. Is, the, is this, burden of having something that could fail so extraordinary, what holds us back from that? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think th there, I'm 25 years into this, um, and I know from history that there were hundreds of years behind that in which people were prognosticating the end of the art form. Okay. 
because of its unlikeliness, because of its expense, because of the dwindling audience, because of the changing demographics of the audience. There's something about the opera community that is fetishizes this kind of self-flagellation. Innovation is is not an end into itself. You know the. We have we have two responsibilities. One is that we, we are stewards of a tradition, and and the the art form only works in performance, right? So that there's these masterpieces that have to be interpreted and reinterpreted, and they should be they should do so in a way that feels idiomatic to the time and place in which they're being interpreted. But but it's essential that they that they that the canon is is part of that. Um, and uh, we want to make sure that there are new audiences and tastes change over time. I mean, we see this just in our own lifetime, the, the incredible kind of uh, attention to Baroque opera, which would have seemed like science fiction. And then suddenly all these bel canto masterworks come into place based on the fact that there's the talent to, to uh, promote that stuff and that then an audience grows for it. I get worried that the idea of innovation for innovation's sake feels to me like a dead end. Um, Can I just add into that, Christopher? Yeah. Even at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the great impresario, Serge Diaghilev, who brought the Ballet Russe and the, the uh, opera to Western Europe, he said at that time, you cannot make, he was interviewed, you cannot make a career out of innovation because you're going to run out of ideas very quickly. I believe, as somebody who is one of the creators of productions and creators in opera, that our job, is, as Christopher was saying, is to use the canon of work that we have to inspire us to the new. We, I don't know if what I'm doing is innovative or new or anything like that. I think very much it's in the eye of the beholder. What I count as artistic, for you, might be a pile of crap. And equally, I've sat there in performances, as I did several times this year, watching stuff with people saying, isn't this extraordinary? And my answer was, yes, you're damn right, it's extraordinary, this shit hit the stage. <laughs> so that opinion is- I was really leaning into the yeah, I know, I know. for I dirty language. language so you, I'm happy to give you dates, performances, and places if you want to tell us where those were. Um, so, 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 then, so then the question stays with you, Paul. Uh, if, if, can we just keep redoing Bohem? Can we just keep redoing Figaro? Like, is there? It, I understand that there are stalwarts and that they are huge. They are seminal pieces of art, right? We can't. Lulu is Lulu, and it's extraordinary. But like, we need to keep making those. And it, and it, yes. it, right. Yeah, but let me give you let me give you an analogy. I was in uh, Florence earlier this year at the Maggio doing the Flying Dutchman. And I went um, very late at night when it was pr practically empty to the Uffizi galleries and I looked at a lot of the paintings. So I was, uh, I'd always avoided the busy rooms, the Botticellis. And I went and I looked at the Botticellis and it was towards the end of the day. Something happened that really, really struck me and it was this. Looking at La Primavera in the light of the room that was in there, all of a sudden when daylight came into the room or a cloud went by, La Primavera changed. It was the same painting seen in a different light. Then the cloud went past and it was bright again, then another cloud and a little more misty. The same five, 600 year old painting I saw in three, four, five different ways in the same 30 seconds. Totally, wow. And I would just add to that that um, another analogy which is speaking of let's say Figaro or whatever, you know, uh, 
uh, it's almost, for me, the same question of, even though I've heard the role of Susanna sung 9,042 times, um, would I still be interested if some unbelievable soprano decided to interpret it for me? A hundred percent, I would listen to it, you know, a thousand more times for a thousand different singers. So I think that, um, I think that, that uh, the same thing can be said for, you know, not just the role of the cast, but the role of the director and um, designers. I think that, you know, reinterpreting- And the piece itself. Yeah. And just the piece itself. But, but also the, the way that, I mean, you, I mean to, to Paul's metaphor, you wouldn't, you, you don't want to put away the Botticelli because popular taste says that Jeff Koons is more popular. Ideally, you, you want to actually show that there's a lot, you know, that there's there's a trajectory of development here. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's plenty of um, anxiety in this room about Philip Glass. We've had this conversation before. Yeah. But the proximity of Monteverdi to Philip Glass illuminates both works. Part of the pleasure of putting an, an opera together and season together is to think about the ways in which the light on that Botticelli is changing, the way in which you're receiving the Figaro because the cast is different, because the production is different, because it's proximity. You just heard Clemenza the season before, and now it's changing your opinion of it. Your your tastes are changing. The world around it is changing. That masterpiece is not is not static. It's, and also, it's, it's worth revisiting. That masterpiece was new once. Everything that we do, everything that we revive, was once a brand new piece that had never been heard. Imagine the scandal in Prague. The scandal when Don Giovanni premiered and a D minor chord was heard for the first time with a full orchestra. People were outraged. It was written about in the newspapers. There were drawings about it, the scandal that this caused. That was a brand new work that nobody liked at that time. Bizet's Carmen, nobody liked it at the beginning. Bizet never saw it as a success. It was a disaster. So we have to keep, if the work is popular, if the work is liked, even if it's disliked by some people, if you have faith in it, and you interpret it for your own generation. I cannot interpret Don Giovanni for the 18th century because I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> I don't know what it was like in the 18th century, but I know what it's like today, and I know what it was like 20 years ago and 30 years ago and even 40 years ago. So we have to take, I think it's our job, as with that Botticelli, is every time a different light hits that work, it's our job to shine the light. It just happens to be a different light with every generation. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary metaphor. Uh, uh, that's what you're here for, Paul. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm glad, and thank you, good night. Yes, yeah, thank you, good night. Yeah, go have a glass of wine. I, 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 sure, everything you're saying, I, I, I absolutely, but to play devil's advocate, but also to really feel this way, this summer at Bard Festival, the Summerscape Festival, uh, who Josh Winograd is the new casting director for there. Um, he was nice enough to hire me and my wife to sing there. And uh, we, we did Das Wunder de Heliana, which, uh, heard of it? Probably not. It's a corn gold piece. It's, uh, you know, all that it, people know about corn gold is Die Todestadt, but Heliana is this incredible piece. It has this, it has this seminal, huge aria for the Heliana in the middle of the second act, which is sort of the only piece that made it into popular culture. And what was amazing that I had never experienced in my life, uh, my, sh my short life, I had never experienced this. I had never experienced an opening night where people walked out and they were like, uh, it's so anti-feminist. And then from across the room we heard, You're, you didn't see it right, it's totally a feminist opera. And it, there was this huge argument in, in, the, in the hall uh, at the opening night party and they were like, well, what did you think about the piece? And, and it was this intense, I mean, 
rather, people, you know, there was a lot, there was alcohol was flowing at the opening night party, but people were very aggressively critiquing the piece, and the people that loved it loved it, and the people that hated it hated it, and they were surprised genuinely by the ending. And I thought, it was just a different, it's impossible to describe, but it was a different energy in the room after people had saw this piece that had been unearthed and who weren't familiar with it that walked in as opposed to an opening night after a Figaro or an opening night after, a, 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 sorry to keep using Bohem, but, but, yeah, but do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, except that, you know, I mean, the conversations that I heard after the dress rehearsal of, <laughs> of sure, this Bohem sure. and the conversations I heard after opening night of this Bohem, I mean, uh, it would be hard, I think, to find consensus even in this room sure. about, about Barry's uh, Bohem. I don't think this is a referendum. Look, we have all spent a lot of evenings in opera houses, and it can be the worst, most enervating experience you can have <laughs> in, your, in your life. Um, and yet, you've had that really wonderful, totally spiritual, transcendent experience, and you're looking for that high over and over again. Um, it, it's, it's the flip side of the same coin. The, the qualities that make an opera potentially great can also be the ones that can make it the most deadly experience in the opera. That isn't necessarily about the piece mm -hmm. or even about the singers. It may just be about your mood or it may be about the acoustics in the house or it may be about the meal you had or the mood that you're in. Yeah. Um, none of that for me is a referendum on the greatness of the work or the sense that a season has to be full of novelty in order to be interesting for an audience. There's, you know, we're a pretty rarefied group of people. You know, 99.9% .9 of the population has never even heard of Boheme, never mind heard Boheme. Sure. And we have a responsibility to those individuals as well. But then a whole crowd of other people have heard of Boheme through Rent. Yeah, right, which you have I, to deal with, right? I don't like Rent. I, don't, I was asked to be the uh, revival director 25, 30 years ago when I started my career in London by the, the then director of it, who, to quote him, when I went for my interview, he said, I don't give a shit who does this. I thought, oh, thanks. That's, that's a real... <laughs> Ringing endorsement. Ringing endorsement. Ringing endorsement. Oh, absolutely, Am I talent? baby. You better believe it. But Rent and, for example, Miss Saigon are both modern interpretations of La Boheme and of Madame Butterfly. They reach a new audience. My partner, my husband, loves Rent. He doesn't understand why I can't bear it, because I just can't bear hearing that guitar thing happening time and time again. <laughs> but I will say, despite my like or dislike of it, I love and respect the fact that it's taken La Boheme forward into another generation, another crowd of people that will like it. I was previously the artistic director of the Norwegian National Opera. I forgot to mention that in your bio. You did. He was. He was. 2007 yeah. to 2011? Forgiven. Never be forgiven. I know. That. Disgrace. I know. You were general director. How did you I didn't that? mention I was a dancer either, but that was maybe wise. <laughs> it's very wise. Yeah, many years and many, many pounds ago, I was a dancer. At the Norwegian Opera, we had a similar problem as you guys have here. Where the hell do we get new audiences? How do we get people into this? into this theater. And I met a group very much like you guys here who were our opera guild, and one of them said to me, what, you know, what are you gonna do? And I said, I need to be honest with you, I need your help. Because it's real simple. You and me, we're all dying. We're not gonna be here in 30, 40 years. So who is? Who are we passing it on to? And how do we do that? 
The idea of, is it relevant? Who gives a shit if it's relevant? LabOM's relevant to everybody. Great, big deal. But you might have somebody that comes in and hears Don Giovanni or hears Onegin or something and is hit by something else that may or may not be relevant to me but is relevant to them. My answer to it was to ask for their help, which I did, and also then I thought my biggest enemy at the time was the internet. I turned it into my biggest friend. I turned it into something that I said, I have to use this in a way that I don't have the same attention span as those that are 30 years younger than me. I just don't, I have a longer attention span. But theirs is click, interested, no. Click, interested, yes. So I had to actually embrace that. Um, I felt like such an idiot doing it, to be honest, at the beginning, because I didn't really understand their culture. When they get in a computer and they go and I'm like, oh, what? I didn't get that. But it worked. This, the two pieces that sold out, the two pieces that really sold out at the Norwegian Opera, the biggest sales in percentages we had, if you can believe it, were Lulu and The Rape of Lucretia. The third one was Rosalka. How did we do that? I just turned them into stories that people in their 20s and 30s would understand. Who doesn't understand the plight of the rape of Lucretia? It's not about Lucretia, really, it's about him. How do we discuss? So we took it to a conversation about men controlling themselves. That went on the internet, it went on podcasts like this. I would do an audience survey, I'd talk to the audience in the intermission. That started something different. So for you guys here, that you've got this challenge. I, I don't run a company anymore, so I don't need to worry about it. You just pay me, it's great. <laughs> but you have this challenge of who is the new generation and how do we get them into the live event? Well, you know, that's, an, that, that's something that I wanted to mention because um, we've, we've done a, spent a lot of time defending tradition um, and defending repe you know, existing repertoire. But I have to say, interestingly enough, I think we would all agree that we're also living in a time in which innovation in music theater in general has never been... Um, more diverse and more exciting. I mean, I think that technology has something to do with that. I think that it also has to do with, um, we all are all aware of uh, groups of artists making their own things work um, because, you know, for financial necessity, but also artistic necessity. And so I think we live in a time in which um, innovation has, in this, in our business, has never been higher. Sure, I, so, so I guess then the question is, Oh, then the question is, uh, so, so Christopher, when you sit down, you know, to, to plan a season and are you going to bring in Paul to direct this and you're going to do this new production and equally, Josh, when you talk, start thinking about, uh, you, you know, what are you going to do off grand and what are you going to do in those spaces and Beth Morrison projects and that kind of thing, do you, do you sit down and think to yourself, okay, uh, Sir George Clooney always says, one for them, one for me. You know, that's his big thing. Do you think about that? I mean, do you think like, oh, let's bring in this new bohem so to service in service of, you know, Eurydice in the, in the spring? Or do you think, again, LA, I must say, is the redheaded stepchild in all of this, which is a quote I'm stealing from someone said tonight. We are, and, and this is not just me being a homer, we are the most innovative opera company in America in terms of pushing forward new productions and doing Beth, stuff with Beth Morrison and stuff. So it's, it's more of a question for, you know, the, the David Gockley types. But it, it would certainly, do you think about planning a season in that way? Sort of like, let's do 
you know, if we're gonna do Bohem, then we're gonna be able to do this other thing, or do you just try to put an eclectic season together? That's a long question, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, every, everything is about balance. It's about balancing uh, the finances. It's about balancing uh, a repertory plan over a number of years. As I have talked about, I think probably endlessly, it is impossible for us to fully represent the contours of the canon over the course of one season. So I tend to think about them over the course of many seasons. I'm very attracted to multi-year programmatic threads. I'm attracted to thematic programming. I think our audience really responds to context, which is how you come up with the kind of festival models that we use. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, I mean, in my mind, we're, we're looking for balance. We're looking for balance of the familiar and the unfamiliar. Um, we're looking to, to, you know, the reason why the Toscas, the Butterflies, the Bohems come back on a fairly regular basis is because that's the way to attract the largest possible audience. And you want to do that even as you're at risk of enraging your subscribers, that, that you're doing it that often. In which case, you're making a calculation of can you do a new interpretation of it that's going to get people to come back. I've said this to this crowd a lot, so I apologize in advance if I'm repeating myself, but I would say that over the course of my career, I have been worried about the fact that people talk less about musical values and more about dramatic values. They talk about storytelling. They talk about production aesthetics. The, the old model where you could invest in a production and bring it back year over year to Josh's point, and the audience would respond to the different interpretation of a different Susanna, a different count. You know, the audience isn't necessarily there for that anymore. Um, so to some degree, you're trying to create uh, novelty. Off-Grand was really based on, to Josh's point, the fact that there was this unbelievable amount of innovation that was happening amongst the generation of creators that the opera company had no facility to be able to accommodate. You know, you commission something for the main stage and this is a four or five million dollar endeavor. And no one will have heard of the piece and no one will have heard of the composer and people will vote with their wallets and it will be, it may be a noble failure, but it would be a failure. It would be played at half empty houses. And this provided a whole new line of the business where we could provide opportunities for both artists to try their trade and also for audiences to discover us. It's been wildly successful beyond even my most optimistic sure, sure. Um, uh, expectations. That's a great word for it. Gotcha. And um, you gave Christopher Kelch a word. Oh, that's on tape, baby. He receives Record a round of applause, that, I think, huh? really. Um, but I should also say, uh, I'll say sort of defensively, sure. um, the, the LA Opera audience, and this is bizarre, but it's true, the LA Opera audience for the main stage is uh, demographically not what you think it is. Yeah. It is economically, racially, more diverse than any of the other campus assets, and that includes Center Theater Group, which is unusual given what that repertory is. And, and the median age at the LA Opera is younger than, than the rest of the um, entities on the, on the campus. You know, we, we are invested in making sure, because again, I think a lot about, opera is about a chain of stewardship. Hmm. You know, I think a lot about how we're making sure that the people that are sitting in the chairs after us have an opera company to run. Um, but I also think that a little bit like the innovation question, the, the wringing of the hands about the graying of the audience, uh, 
is a kind of fetish that we have. A great audience is a renewable resource. And so you want to provide as many opportunities for as many people to be exposed to this art form as you possibly can without, without to my mind, trying to create programming that is specific to a demographic, because that, that is a fool's errand. You're, you're not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean if you, especially if you think about this house, like you're talking like 3,000 people a show, six shows. That's a math, which I won't do, but it's a 18, lot of people. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and that's a great expectation to have. I, I, but I think when it, you know, yes, it, 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 maybe it's an act of futility in and of itself to, to try to pick out a demographic and say, we're doing this for them and that for them. Um, but, you know, it's been so interesting moving to Germany and working there. Um, where we do, we do, we, we're, we're in Carlsruhe, which is a, a big city, but really it's the size of Mobile, Alabama. It's 450,000 people. My, and uh, we do 20 titles a year, which is insane. I mean, it's an insane, it's wild. And it's a very different art set up there. It's government funded. It, that's a different conversation that we will have off mic of whether that's good or not. But like, it, it you know, it's so interesting to do productions there because they just, it's just time to do Freischutz. So we do Freischutz, and we do this crazy production, and we get booed for 20 minutes afterwards. Uh, I mean, really, and, and the director says stuff like, I just need you to drool on a gata. And I'm like, with my real drool? And he's like, yeah, of course. What else would you do it with? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, get a lot of, I get a lot of weird productions there, but you do them, you do them because you have to do them because it's time. And in other words, they don't, they don't do you know, Bohem every two years, they do Bohem every seven or eight or 10 or 12. And by that time, they will have worked through the entire Puccini canon, including Il Tabaro and Lavili and all these like deep cut works. And uh, I don't know, yeah, deep cuts. And I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if that's more successful or not in terms of gaining new audiences. And maybe Paul, you can speak to that, but. I, but if, if we don't keep reviewing pieces, if we don't keep reinterpreting, if we don't keep rethinking, how the hell is, any, if we just do this, as Einstein said, if you do the same thing the same way and you expect the same result, a you're different insane. result, you're insane. Right, right, so right. we must look at them in a different way. Apart from anything, all the Mozart pieces that we do today, the pitch is vastly different today from what it was in the 18th century. Sure. So they're all singing lower than they were back then. We have to keep looking. A fascinating thing I saw in, in my first week in Norway, I was asked to present an award, the Hedda Gabler Awards, at the National Theatre, and it was for Best Young Director. Um, and I was in the green room, and there was a painting, a magnificent painting of a gentleman. This is the N Ibsen's Theatre, the National Theatre in Oslo. And the picture of the gentleman was from the 19th century, but he had his back to us. You didn't see his face. It was a full-length portrait. So I said to this guy, what the hell is that? That's bizarre. Even then, 2007, I was like, that's really weird. And he said, he was the first actor to turn his back on an audience and speak in an Ibsen play. So when they did the portrait of him, they did it like that. And I thought, that's innovation. That's innovation. That guy <laughs> made that decision. For sure. He made that decision, and people supported him yeah. making that decision. And people hated it, and people booed and shouted and screamed. But he is remembered today, over 100 years later, for exactly having his ass to the audience. That You're really filling the, the, the swear jar tonight. Yes. I'm, see? I'm, I well, come it. on, catch up, boys. I love it. It's, a, love it's it. a podcast. You asked the Scotsman to swear, for goodness sakes. Um, so, so, Josh, this is a question for you from the singing side. Um, do you, 
I, I will keep my own opinion out of this as a singer uh, and just ask the question because uh, I'm a professional. Uh, when you when you have to when you have to you know when you see the score of a new opera uh, and and you and you see the tessitura and for those of you who don't know that's where like how high or low the pitch lies for the singer and you see this like skyrocket high tessitura and you you think oh god like what are we gonna do and when you when you when you offer is there a difference in, in, in sort of planning a cast, you know, doing that whole sort of this, this person will work with, with this one and the whole chemistry of it? Is there a difference in uh, the way you would do that for a bohem? And a bohem's just getting shit on tonight, huh? But, or, or, or is it different when you look at a new piece? And how do you approach those two things? Well, I think, um, you know, th there are artists that we all know of as having different strengths. And... Um, and I think that one of the things that I find most exciting is that um, uh, there's a whole generation of young singers coming up with um, talent sets that are uh, different than previous generations. There are a lot of singers who have um, real expert new music experience. A lot of that, you know, generally we attribute to um, either good ear training or or just, a, you know, a good musicianship. But on top of that, a real stage savvy that's a kind of modern theater-based stage sure, sure. Um, aesthetic. Uh, you know, the thing that we say is like, um, oh, the director could get that person to do anything, you know, and, and they would do it gung-ho. You know, you want someone to swing in and sing their aria on a trapeze upside down. So some people just bring that skill to the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that, you know, when you're looking at uh, a piece with a tessitura that's a little bit, you know, non-traditional or, or uh, um, I think that uh -huh. you just kind of know, you have a bank of singers, of artists in your head that, that, that do that kind of thing well. The Tom Addis players. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, it's funny. Um, I... I... Uh, I... It, read an interview with a, a composer that was talking about really enjoying feeling like um, the human voice was being brought to its limits, um, which to me was almost like somebody saying, I really enjoy writing stuff for the piano that results in tendonitis. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's totally. Like, it's like an irresponsible yeah. way of, of doing it. So, um, you know, I think that there are people for whom that high-flying role you mentioned as an example might result in whatever the vocal equivalent of tendonitis is. Um, and then there are people who their physiology and their ear training and their vocalism, it just makes them kind of perfect for um, what I, what I uh, when I write notes about auditions that I'm hearing, I'll say, this person is great for a role that requires a trick. You know, yeah. and so there are certain people who just have tricks built into their system, and I think, um, you know, yes, the answer to your question is when you're casting for a new piece, um, it it's a different set of criteria you're using, or can be. That's yeah, absolutely. I know when I when, I mean, the answer when someone says like Josh says, "Hey, do you want to do this role?" You just say yes. That's the only thing you respond to that email usually. Um, but there's always those moments where you get those new scores and those new pieces, and you and you think to yourself, "Oh my lord, how am I going to do this?" Um, yeah, no, that's it's 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 very interesting. So, I I want to. This is sort. I got. I pulled this Beth Morrison quote, and I want to say it, even though we've already covered it, sort of to finish up. I because we're already at 42 minutes. I told you it would go fast. I know it's amazing. Um, 
a lot of my one-on-one interviews, because I don't have like a clock next to me, uh, go quite longer than planned, uh, which is always fun. But Beth Morrison said, who I don't know if you know or not, we do a lot with her. She's a, a new music innovator, new, uh, new opera producer. Um, she said at the Opera America conference last year, uh, she said the only place that should be doing Okay, this, this is gonna be fun. She's the only place that should be doing uh, standard repertory opera in, in the United States is the Met. I think it's very interesting that she would say that, and of course she's, she's hyperbolic in her saying of it, which I think is really interesting, but... but <sighs> so the Met should never have premiered Fanchula? Well, no, I think, the, I think the whole that's... point is, is like, uh, again, for innovation I, I think, for innovation's yeah, sake. I, I, Knowing Beth as I do, I, th I think she said that to be purposely provocative. Oh, 100%. I think that she, yeah. she too agrees with the idea that your experience of Ellen Reed's Pulitzer Prize winning Prism... Totally. Which we it, premiered. Yes. Is Sneak in, it in there. ...is enhanced immeasurably. Like an audience going into that for the first time could have a perfectly reasonable experience of it, but if they knew something about the bel canto tradition of singing, my argument is that actually the experience is much, much, much richer. So when you find this, the Venn diagram of the people who know um, bel canto singing and they know club music, you know, and there's a couple of people in the room who, for whom that's that true. But what's that Venn diagram is a very small crossover, I'm just is it saying, not? I'm just saying that, you know, our, our sound guy, Martin, might be the only one in the center It's not true. Of that. I, there's a few people in the room for whom that's true. And, and their experience was deeply enhanced by that set of knowledge. Now, you didn't need it to have a great experience of sure, that opera, sure. but it helped. It, it is the dialogue between the generations, between composers, the influences that you hear. That's, that's part of the huge pleasure of any aesthetic experience. That's the huge pleasure of going to a comprehensive museum. That's the huge pleasure of, of eating food, of drinking wine, of understanding how this piece fits into the, the trajectory of human exploration of uh, the condition in extremis over time through generations. So I know why she probably, I can assume why she said that in that context. I don't actually genuinely believe that that no, she I believes I that. No, I think she said it for the same reason that I said it here tonight, which was to be provocative and stir on a conversation. But I think, you know, listen, I, I don't, uh, do this, I want to say this? This? Company, this company is committed to doing a contemporary masterwork on the main stage in every season. Um, sometimes that works out for the audience. Can you sometimes define it doesn't. contemporary? Like, what does that mean for you? 1950, 1920? Uh, no, that would be modern. But I mean, okay. we—I'm uh, trying to think. Since since we've done it, have, we've done. I'm trying to think if I've cheated yet. I don't think I have. Have I cheated? I don't think I've cheated. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, 1970 sure. and and forward. Okay. And and that that really is about you know there's this conversation's got a sort of weird way, but. Um, we have a responsibility to the canon from Monteverdi onward. And onward includes, we have a responsibility to making sure that pieces that were not canonical 20 years ago could be considered canonical now. I mean, the whole, the whole project of the Philip Glass trilogy was about, was about re 
making a case that that piece could be reasonably considered, or those three pieces could be considered to be canonical going forward. But do you feel like you're do don't you feel like you're doing the piece, uh, the new piece in question? I don't know. Like it's, if 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 I'm a new music composer, if you allow me to speculate, if I'm a new music composer and in my same season, like Matt O'Coin this season, his new piece, which is going to be brilliant, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be a great production. But like you know, you think about he's in the same year as Roberto Devereaux, La Boheme, you know, in Magic Flute, and and for me, like if you're putting them. What you're basically saying, and this is how I see it, you're basically saying, okay, here are all these pieces, and they're on this level. They're masterpieces of their, their generational, seminal pieces of art and, and literature and culture in that given period. Then you're saying, so is this piece. But you that's not a complete given. For example, I, I, okay. for, exa no, but for example, at the Paris Opera, at the Paris Opera, it was, what was his name, um, uh, that ran the Paris Opera that died, the Belgian, uh, Mortier. Mortier said of Puccini, said of Puccini that Puccini was a third-rate composer and would never be performed in Paris. Was barred from the Paris Opera. So here's a man of the 20th century saying that Puccini's crap. And many people at Puccini's time might have thought Puccini was crap. And he then would do other things. So what you're saying is I don't think we can say these are accepted by all as masterworks. But we've decided that they're in the canon, right? We've decided that like but Magic Flute no, is in every three-year piece. The canon the, comes the, and goes. The canon comes and goes. I'm actually not sure what fight we're having here. Yeah, me neither, the, but it's fun. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Who decides the canon then? That's the, that's the, the great final question. Like, why, why Bohem instead of... I why decide instead the of, canon. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Wrong question, yeah. Nicholas. But, but, but why, you know what I mean? Like, why, why flute, not Clemenza? I mean, watch them both together and you'll know immediately. But, like, why, why... Rude. That, rude. Well, why Manon Lescaut? Why Bohem and not Manon Lescaut? Why Bohem and not Lavili? Why, you know... Because why? it's our job to provoke the conversation. It's our job to come up with a brave idea that says, I'm going to do this piece and do it this way. And the risk is you might like it or you might loathe it. But why can't that, piece, mind, be Manon, why can't keep, that piece be Manon's skull instead of Bowen? Easily. But <laughs> you, you might need to go to another theater, but you can't, you only have a limited, there's only 365 sure. days in a year. Sure. I mean, there's only so much yeah, time I, I, and money. I, I, there's, some, there's some foundational anxiety that you're expressing here that I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite is, sure either. Okay. okay. <laughs> As Christopher said earlier, yeah. The Baroque that we have, all this Baroque opera we have today that is enormously popular all over the world, if you go back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, and before, and way down to the beginning of the 20th century, almost nobody, other than at the Göttingen Festival in Germany, had heard of Baroque opera. Handel was almost never, ever done. Mm -hmm. It was really the Göttingen uh, Festspiele and Raymond uh, Leppard who brought it out of retirement, who started to bring those pieces forward. Think of the bel canto repertoire. Who was the big, big innovators of the bel canto repertoire, which had fallen away in favor of Puccini, Leon Cavallo, sure, and all those sure, people. Sure. Lily Pons, eventually, Mireia Callas, Gui, those conductors, Sutherland, all those people. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But that's people being brave, saying, I think Anna Bolena needs to be heard. I think Annabelle Aiden is a masterwork has to be done. I think Ariodante has to be done at a time when people said, are you kidding? We can't do that old-fashioned stuff. So to answer your question, I think it's up to people like Christopher and Joshua to decide what can be brought forward, what we need to show to people, and hope 
that what we throw at the wall, some of the paint sticks. Remember, to paint the Mona Lisa, there's a hell of a lot of paint in the floor. Sure. I think that's great. Well, the fact is that, you know, you're, if you could do an entire season... I, th I think there's a real danger in feeling that... Because, you know, maybe I'm bored with Bohem because I spent my whole lifetime with it. Totally. But that, I'm not going to impose my boredom on, on the audience, right? So... You're you're looking you're looking for I'm not bored with Bohem by the way, but um, but I'm, if you I'm were hypothetically speaking, right? Of yes. course, yeah, yeah, right. That that you know our responsibility is to the uh, ideally to the totality of the community and trying to keep subscribers and supporters you know who are at the core of that in mind in in, in bringing them um, a balance of the of the new and the familiar, um, and you know. M money is a is a factor. Totally, totally. I think that's great. I, I want to be respectful of y'all's time. We're at 51 minutes. We went a little long because things got very excited. Uh, we just had a, uh, an argument in which we didn't know what we were arguing about, which is perfect. Exactly how I wanted it to be. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.